It was many years ago now, I was working as a police officer in Sydney and I worked one particular shift in the station and I received a phone call, just a phone call from the local hospital. And they rang uh, to say that they had a deceased person. Someone had died in hospital and given the circumstances it needed the police to investigate on behalf of the coroner. Uh, Certain deaths and certain fires require police to investigate because they're coronial matters. It wasn't uncommon. Uh, They rang. I organised for our car crew to get up there whenever they could to start the investigation. About 30 minutes later, I received probably the strangest phone call I've ever had in my life. The same hospital rang back to say about that dead person we rang about, well, they're alive, so we don't need you. And I was absolutely stunned, and for the rest of my life, I think, I've been disappointed in not asking about 50 questions that I could think of now as to what on earth happens. But I simply simply hung up, and still to this day have no idea of the circumstances of why that person was apparently dead, but then alive only half an hour later. Kind of beggar's belief, doesn't it, that that would happen? Well, while that might be a surprising story... The story, the account of Jesus' death and his raised life is far more significant than any account of someone being apparently dead and then alive in a hospital. The account of Jesus' death and resurrection makes a difference to you and to me, a practical, significant difference to our lives. So what we're going to look at tonight as we look at the hope of the resurrection is whether or not this is true. Because if it is true, it's hugely significant. If it's not true, we might as well all go home now. So let's have a look at 1 Corinthians 15. Let me read for you verse 14 and verse 17. I'm going to start in verse 14 and we look at what Paul has to say in regard to this. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. And down in verse 17, he says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. See what Paul says? If Jesus is not raised from the dead, you and I ought to turn the lights off, last person out, lock the door, because there is no point in us gathering together. It's futile for us to be here together under the circumstances that Jesus isn't risen. But if Jesus did rise back to life, there is hope, and that hope is massive for us. Have a look at verse 21. Here are the implications if Jesus is risen from the dead. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive but each in turn. Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. So the implications for us is, if Jesus is risen from the dead, then you and I can face death knowing that we too can be raised to life after death. Now we've just celebrated Easter a couple of weeks ago. Good Friday and Easter Sunday, we remember the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, the empty tomb. We remember that Jesus is alive. I want to ask you the question, do you find that hard to believe? 
Do you find it hard to believe that Jesus was dead and buried on a Friday and then on a Sunday raised back to life? Because if that's you, I want to say you're in pretty good company. If you're a sceptic and a doubter, if from time to time you think to yourself, I'm just not sure, then you're in excellent company. Because Jesus' disciples thought the same thing. In fact, Jesus told his disciples three separate times in the Gospel of Mark that he would suffer and die and rise to life. And the response of those disciples was doubt. Doubt every time. Let me read for you Mark 9, verse 31 and 32. Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. Here's how they respond. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. That was the disciples. The women who went to the tomb on Easter Sunday, they took spices to embalm the body of Jesus. Because even having heard the stories, they too, like all of the disciples, expected that because Jesus was dead, he would stay dead. And Thomas, the classic doubter in the whole account, Thomas said, John 20, verse 25, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Friends, if you're a doubter here tonight, you're in really good company because none of Jesus' early followers expected that he would die and then rise back to life. But let me encourage you to look at the evidence because I think at the end of tonight you will find the evidence very compelling. So please join me as we check out the evidence for Jesus' resurrection. We're going to do that firstly by looking at four common objections. There are four more common objections that people would have to believing that Jesus rose from the dead. They have other explanations for Jesus' death. And so let, we're going to touch on these four. Let me, let me describe them to you. Firstly, Jesus never died. Secondly, the disciples stole the body. Thirdly, the disciples were deceived. And fourthly, it's a myth that developed over time. There are four common objections that people make to believing that Jesus rose from the dead. So firstly, Jesus never died. That's our first objection. And it goes like this, really. People would say that Jesus wasn't actually fully dead. He was very ill, but he was put into the tomb and somehow recovered, gained some health, and that is why we've got the story that we've got today. People have misunderstood what occurred and they think Jesus simply revived in the tomb and came good. And so people thought that he was dead and buried and then risen to life, but that's not the facts. So in order to respond to that, we've got to really ask the question, did Jesus really die? Or was he simply gravely ill and could somehow have recovered? Did Jesus really die? So let's touch on that. Here's some of the evidence for Jesus really being dead. Firstly, Roman soldiers were experts in killing people. It's not a nice thing to think of in your job description, but if you're a Roman soldier, you were an expert in killing people. And apart from being experts in the matter, they actually had a vested interest in making sure that Jesus was dead on that very first Good Friday. If they didn't carry out their orders and make sure that Jesus was dead, they could be executed themselves for failing to carry out that order. So there were highly motivated soldiers that wanted to put Jesus to death. 
Alongside of that, John tells us that when uh, a spear was put through Jesus' side, water and blood flowed out, and the medical experts tell us that only happens after death. The centurion at the foot of the cross said, surely this man was the son of God. And while he was saying that this Jesus was God and that's spectacular, it's clear from his words that the centurion understood that Jesus was dead. He is dead and buried. That's what the centurion understood. And Pilate, who heard that Jesus was dead and thought it happened a bit quicker than he expected, he actually checked with the centurion to make sure that Jesus was, t- was dead. So there was a double-checking process that occurred in all that. That's just some of the evidence as you look through the accounts of Jesus' death that confirm that he really was dead. But they did find an empty tomb. So the question is, is it because Jesus, despite all the evidence to the contrary, never really died, but revived, revived over the course of a couple of days and then was seen by everyone alive? Well, apart from what we've just looked at, it's worth asking some questions of this theory as to whether or not it's valid and reasonable to think this. First question is this. How does a man who was so gravely and critically ill on Friday, so gravely ill that everyone involved was convinced that he was dead, how does that man regain consciousness and health in a cold tomb without any medical help and not just miraculously do that but actually roll away a stone and walk out of that tomb in the presence of Roman soldiers who are specifically guarding the tomb to make sure the body is not stolen, how does that Jesus then somehow walk out of a tomb and convince everyone he sees that he was dead and is now alive? Now, I think that takes some significant leap of faith to find yourself believing that particular theory. In the movie The Princess Bride, a bit of a cult classic movie, if you haven't seen it, you probably should, the main character, Wesley, has the life sucked out of him by a torture machine. If that's not enough to make you want to watch the movie, I don't know what is. If you've seen it, you'll know the scene I'm talking about. Wesley looks dead, but Wesley is taken to a fella called Miracle Max. There should be a photo up on the screen of Miracle Max in a sec. His friends desperately need Wesley to come back to life. Miracle Max makes an investigation of Wesley's health and decides that Miracle Max is not dead, he's only mostly dead. And because he's mostly dead, Miracle Max has an ability to cure him and to bring him back to full life. And so Miracle Max does his miracle and duly revives Wesley, who goes on, I'm going to, a spoiler alert here, Wesley goes on to save the day, although for the rest of the movie... Wesley has absolutely no energy so that he cannot hold his head on top of his neck. His head keeps on falling down. He can't stand up because he has been mostly dead and then he's brought back to life. But he's incredibly weak and not capable of doing normal human things. Because, friends, that's normal human experience, isn't it? If you're on your deathbed a couple of days later, you're still struggling to recover. That's what we would expect because it's normal human experience. If someone is near death, they won't be totally well just a couple of days later. We will understand from their appearance, from their energy, that they've had a near-death experience. And yet Jesus convinced people that he was thoroughly dead 
and then completely alive. Not recovered from serious illness, but completely dead and then full of life. And all of that happened very dramatically between Friday and Sunday. And his good health was evidence to everyone he appeared to that he'd been raised from the dead. Next objection, really, is um, did the disciples steal the body? So were they, uh, were they people who took the body of Jesus and fabricated a story? The tomb of Jesus was empty on Sunday morning. Is it explained by saying the disciples snuck in and stole the body? One thing to remember to start with in regard to that objection, the Roman guards were stationed at the tomb. The disciples are frightened, huddled together in an upper room. You'd need to believe that those same people then went to the tomb of Jesus and somehow got past a group of Roman guards who were stationed there specifically to stop the body being stolen. And then having stolen the body under those circumstances, also remember that many of those disciples, in fact most of those disciples, gave their lives And if this description of the empty tomb is true and correct, then they gave their lives, all of them, understanding that what they were claiming, that Jesus was dead and risen to life, foundational claim that they always made, they gave their lives claiming something they knew to be a lie. And none of them at any point, even up to the point of death, ever recanted that story. Now, probably that's difficult to believe that those circumstances would exist to explain the empty tomb. Now, what about the disciples uh, were deceived? Did the disciples hallucinate and see a risen Jesus? Were they all deceived by the circumstances where they all thought they saw a risen Lord Jesus, but that wasn't actually what was happening before them? Were the disciples deceived? Well, Jesus appeared to many people at different times. Let me read for you the start of 1 Corinthians 15, a description of his appearance to different people. 1 Corinthians 15, I'm going to pick it up at the end of verse 5. There Paul says that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living though some have fallen asleep. Jesus' appearance is not just to one person who perhaps hallucinated and had a, a false understanding of what had occurred, but to 500, more than 500 different witnesses. Now, what we know about hallucinations is they occur in the mind of one person for different circumstances. To have two people have exactly the same hallucination at the same time would be without precedent in history. To have more than 500 people all deceived by the same hallucination, all thinking they had seen something, in fact, that didn't happen, well, that's way beyond belief. And Paul actually says in 1 Corinthians 15, he invites investigation of all of these people. For those who don't believe, he's saying in the first century, go back and speak to those people who saw the risen Lord Jesus, ask them questions and they'll be able to tell you what they saw and heard and they were all thoroughly convinced they saw a risen Jesus who once was dead but then was alive. 
So why couldn't the authorities, who were deeply opposed to Christianity, deeply opposed to this story of Jesus being dead and raised to life, being told and going out, why is it that that never happened? Partly it's because hundreds upon hundreds of people were testifying that they had physically seen Jesus. They had heard him speak. They had seen him eat. And in regard to this, if it was really a deception or a hallucination amongst hundreds of people, why wouldn't someone amongst the opposition to the Christians in those early days have simply produced a body? Why would someone not have gone to the tomb and brought out the body of Jesus and said, you've all been foolishly tricked? Lastly, some people say that the empty tomb is a myth that developed over time, that this is a story that's just developed over the centuries and we now believe something that simply never happened. And again, the first question to ask is, if, it, if it's a myth, why wouldn't anyone somewhere along the centuries produce the body of Jesus? That's never happened. But in order to deal with this idea of a myth, I'm going to take you to another myth. And I want to give you a big spoiler alert for this. I think I'm at the service where this is going to be okay. We're going to deal with the myth of Santa Claus. I'm sorry if that's a shock for you, but we're going to speak to the myth of Santa. Had to be much more careful at the other services today. There was a lot more riding on this. Santa is based on the story of a 4th century Greek bishop, Saint Nicholas, who gave gifts to children. By all accounts, he was a very generous man. That's a long, long time ago. That story's changed significantly over time. Mostly, as it turns out, as it looks, in the 16th century, the story of Saint Nicholas was moulded together, perhaps with a few other different stories across countries, and it helped to develop partly from a poem and partly from some drawings to become something very different to what it was in the 4th century. And it's developed even more in the last three or four centuries as well. So you think back to the fourth century, it's fairly simple. It's the story, the account of a generous man who gave gifts to children. It's developed over the course of nearly 2,000 years to be the story of a man, a fat man in a red suit living in the North Pole with a miraculous form of transport who's able to visit every child in the entire world on one particular day and give out all of their best wishes, all of their gifts. That's a remarkable change in the story, no matter how you look at it. Because that's what happens with myths. They start as one particular story and they develop over the time to be embellished and changed to be something entirely different. Now the objection is that the story of Jesus risen from the dead is a myth that never existed in the first place. But we actually know exactly what those first disciples claimed. It's in the start of 1 Corinthians 15. It's that Jesus was dead and buried and has been raised to life and is now alive. Friends, the story of Jesus raised to life has never changed from that very first Easter Sunday. So the account of Jesus risen from the dead cannot be a myth. It doesn't fit the category. It's something entirely different. Now, the tomb of Jesus was empty on that Sunday morning. We've looked at some objections to that, but why could it be that that tomb was empty? 
Well, the most reasonable explanation, if you carefully look at the evidence, is that the tomb was empty because God raised Jesus from the dead. God raised Jesus from the dead. That fits the evidence clearly. This explains how Jesus appeared to be fit and well after his death. This accounts for the authorities never producing a body. This accounts for the claims of Jesus that he would suffer and die but later rise to life, what he said before he went to the cross. It accounts for those claims most clearly. And they're claims made by a man who raised others to life after death, like Lazarus. This explanation that God raised Jesus from the dead accounts for the change in Jesus' followers from being a scared group huddled together, not wanting to say anything or go anywhere, to the dramatic change of seeing them boldly proclaiming that Jesus was dead but is now alive, and most of them paying for that claim with their lives. What better explains that than the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead? Friends, it's incredibly common to have doubts, to be sceptical, to be uncertain that Jesus is risen from the dead. The Apostle Paul was a sceptic, a doubter. In fact, he was far more than that. He was someone who was thoroughly convinced that Jesus' followers were lying, that the early Christians had fabricated something and that it ought to be stopped. But the Apostle Paul changed He changed from being the greatest persecutor of the church to being the greatest promoter of the Lord Jesus. And he changed to a man who gave his life for the same truth all of the other disciples were teaching and preaching, that Jesus was once dead but is now alive. What explains the change in the Apostle Paul? Except that God has raised Jesus from the dead except that on the road to Damascus, Paul met the risen Lord Jesus because he was alive then and he's alive now. And that makes a difference to all of us. Friends, in our world, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian here tonight, our world describes you as a a person of faith. And our world describes faith as the thing that you do when you run out of evidence. When you've gotten to the end of science and you want to believe something, you take a leap of faith against where the evidence would push you. Friends, that is not biblical faith. Biblical faith doesn't say to ignore the evidence, to move away from the science and the careful investigation. Biblical faith invites investigation to look into the person of Jesus, to ask around to investigate whether or not Jesus really did rise from the dead. So let me encourage you to continue to do that. But as you do that, please recognise that the most reasonable place to land out of all of this is to believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. And if that is the case, then take great heart from that truth. Because God has raised Jesus from the dead, it means that if you have your trust in Jesus, you too, even though you will die, will one day be raised to life. Take heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead and he will raise you too 
from the dead if you have your trust in the Lord Jesus. Now, how will you respond to that risen Lord Jesus?